Blog Talk Radio. Corb argues. 
They're also holding up the Korea people, too, he says. And just because they're political nominees doesn't mean they're not qualified. But Corb relents. Obama nominated a couple of people who didn't deserve to be there. One nominee who's gotten the president a lot of fat, black, is George Tassunas, the hotel executive who Obama nominated to be the next ambassador in Norway, even though, as he admitted in a particularly thorny Senate confirmation hearing, he's never set foot in that country. Over the course of the hearing back in February, it became apparent that Tussunas didn't just lack experience in Norway, he isn't very well versed in politics either. He made a major fumble by saying the country had a president. It doesn't. Norway is headed by a king and a prime minister. Kisunas then called one of the country's most powerful political figures a fringe element. To this, Senator John McCain retorted, the government has denounced them. They're part of the coalition of the government. Kisunas embarrassed replied, you know what, I stand corrected. In an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, McCain wrote that Obama may have tapped Kisunas for an ambassadorial post because he contributed $1.3 million to the president and fellow Democrats ahead of the 2012 election. The New York Times tracked that amount as just over 751000 The same money trail, McCain noted, could be traced back to Colleen Bell, a soap opera producer, and Noah Mamet, a political consultant who he said raised $2 million each for Democratic candidates. The two have been appointed to the ambassadors to Hungary and Argentina, respectively, according to the Times. Bell raised $2.1 million, and Mamet raised nearly $1.4 million. To be sure, the practice of nominating political appointees, including wealthy campaign donors to serve as ambassadors, is unobjectionable in principle, McCain wrote. It predates President Obama, and it's certainly true that political appointees have served with distinction in important and challenging foreign assignments, including the Obama administration. Among those currently married in the confirmation process, the majority are Korea diplomats. Only 14 of the 48 are exactly 30% of political appointees. Five more nominees, all of them Korea diplomats, will be up for voice votes on Tuesday. Corb thinks more such votes on Korea diplomats will follow, but he says getting appointments, especially political ones, to the incoming Republican Majority Congress won't be easy. The effect on U.S. foreign policy because of the vacant ambassadorships is already being felt. You have several impacts, Corb says. One is symbolic. The country will say, you don't really care about us. You have an ambassador here. How important are we to you? And if we need them to work with us at some point, they may not be so happy. The other issue is substantive, because you don't have the most qualified person in there running things. Basically, it seems like they're not concerned about diplomatic relations, he says of current senators, noting it doesn't reflect back on them. But the power struggle at home, Corb says, is dealing a serious blow to America's image abroad. Uh, uh, that's a yeah, I mean, really, yeah, can they just appoint people and uh, what's wrong with it? It's that Congress is. It's all about, are you going to pay me to, to appoint them? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to give me for that appointment? Uh, you know that's what it's about. Okay. Well. Ooh, Walmart workers promised biggest Black Friday strike yeah, ever. How I about was, that? I was hoping to say that for tomorrow night, but since you popped it up, I figured we might as well do it tonight. Probably more tomorrow. Walmart uh, and wow. Yeah, the biggest Black Friday strike ever. Is that going to be all over or just a particular store? I think everywhere. They can. Walmart employees are in organizing uh, as part of our Walmart. Our Walmart uh, are promising their biggest strike ever on Black Friday, uh, saying more employees will strike than in the previous two years. Robert Gertz. An employee for Denver, Colorado, said organizers are expecting to see protests in 1,600 stores. That's a lot of stores, man. Yeah. Well, they don't yet have a headcount uh, of how many workers will strike or in how many cities. She said 
have gotten calls every day from employees who want to join in. Protests will hit Los Angeles and a number of other major metropolitan areas. Employees at more than 2,100 Walmart stores across the country have signed an online petition asking for higher wages and working better conditions. Yeah, um, good. We can read that entire article tomorrow, but that's yeah, we'll, just we'll, good to we'll, mention yeah, it. Yeah, join us tomorrow night when we do our union news and views. We'll include but, that. Uh, uh, but there's going to be a big one, folks, and it's going to be a good big for them. one. We hope that it will work. Be nice for people to get a living wage instead of having to go on welfare yeah. because they work for Walmart. This this one this this article uh, got me tonight because what you, should, what you should know so, about Obama's leading candidate for attorney general. Yeah, and, hmm. and the thing is that bothers me so much. This is from Think uh, Progress, but what bothers me about this one is she's uh, an expert in. Um, um, Fighting the police over over uh, you know issues like race and stuff. Oh. So she's going to go after this uh, Ferguson issue. You see? I see. And why stuff she like that. So that's why she was put in and Holder. You know, a lot of, he, he's a useless piece of crap anyway. Yeah, he's got more. He had to step out. He had to step out. He's, he's being so sued and everything else. Yeah. yeah. Which plus, they've tried to keep. Quiet. Plus, Goldman Sachs wanted him back on his job as, uh, you know, as counsel. So, yeah, which is what he was before he began. Uh, a servant uh, to Obama's yeah, agenda. Yeah. So he was. He worked. He was. His law firm uh, was uh, uh, his biggest client, and his law firm was Goldman Sachs. All right. So. Uh, Goldman Sachs was the biggest contributor to the Obama campaign. How interesting. CNN reports that President Obama is expected to nominate Loretta Lynch. He already did. But uh, I'm going to say what, what this was posted on November 7th. Yeah. So he already did nominate her. She hasn't been confirmed yet. But, yeah. Uh, reports President is expected to nominate Loretta Lynch. Well, which we know she was. The federal prosecutor in Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island to serve as the Attorney General of the United States. If confirmed, Lynch will be the first African-American woman to lead the Justice Department. Much of Lynch's appeal to Obama may stem from the fact that she is removed from many of the political battles that would render her nominee, who has often been at odds with the Republicans, unconfirmable in a GOP-controlled Senate. But Lynch has a distinguished but relatively apolitical career as a prosecutor. After earning both her undergraduate and law degree from Harvard, Lynch was an associate at a large law firm before joining U.S. Attorney Office in East District of New York in 1990. There she rose to several, uh, to all several senior career roles, including Chief Assistant U.S. Attorney for 1998 to 1999, when she was confirmed to lead the Office of U.S. Attorney during the Clinton administration. And shortly after President Clinton left office, Lynch became a partner at another large law firm, uh, until President Obama appointed her as U.S. Attorney in 2009. I wonder why they've left out the name of the law firm. There's one they, large law yeah, firm yeah, yeah. to another yeah, large yeah, law right. firm. Why, have, why are those law firms' names been left know. out? I don't know. It's questionable. Yet, while Lynch's career, Lynch's career. Lynch's career has kept her more distant from Washington, D.C.'s increasingly contentious politics, she is not entirely removed from them. Lynch's Office is currently prosecuting Republican Grimm. Representative, Grimm, no, Republican. Yeah, uh, Representative Michael Grimm, Republican from New York. A former FBI agent charged with 20 counts of fraud, perjury, and other alleged crimes related to allegations that he hid more than a million dollars in gross receipts while he ran a New York restaurant. Oh, well, he must have thought he was a member of the mob. Yeah, probably did. Uh, but, uh, let's see, this is big progress. So this, yeah. is a, this is a, a liberal... Um, news thing, okay? News format. Lynch's biography resembles that of the current Attorney General Eric Holder in at least two respects. Like Lynch, Holder spent many years as a prosecutor before his nomination to the Justice Department's top job. Holder also frequently functioned as the Obama administration's truth teller on issues of race while speaking eloquently about his personal encounters with racism. 
I am the Attorney General of the United States, but I am also a black man, Holder told audience in Ferguson, Missouri, shortly after the racially charged police shooting of Michael Brown, before he recounted a time when he believed he was politically profiled while walking in a violent neighborhood in Washington, D.C. After the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012, Holder recounted the incident caused me to sit down to have a conversation with my own 15-year-old son, like my dad with me, about how as a young black man I should interact with the police. It remains to be seen whether Lynch will take on similar truth-telling role should she be confirmed to lead the Justice Department, but there is little question that she will have stories to tell about her own experiences with racism should she choose to do so. Lynch was born in Greenboro, North Carolina, a year before a series of lunch counter sit-ins in that town helped trigger a wave of similar protests across the country. Lynch also has a personal experience confronting police brutality and other abusive behaviors uh, by the police. In 1997, a police officer sodomized a handcuffed Haitian immigrant named Abner Luima with a broken broomstick in the bathroom of the police station. Oh, my God. Louis Maher suffered a ruptured colon and a bladder and bladder from this incident. He spent two months in the hospital. According to one witness, the cop bragged to other officers how he had tortured Louis Maher at one point, pointing to the broomstick that he inserted in his rectum at another police officer's face and saying, smell this, smell this. Oh, my God. The case quickly became a national symbol of police brutality, generally in a brutality against the African-American community in particular. Lynch, who was then a senior career prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office um, that she currently leads, supervised the successful prosecution of the officer who assaulted Luima. The officer was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Should she be confirmed, Lynch will take over the Justice uh, Department that, under the leadership of Attorney General Holder, has confronted police misconduct on a much grander scale. Under Holder, the Justice Department doubled its investigations into police departments, uncovering numerous examples of police brutality, abuse of people with mental illnesses, and excessive use of deadly force. All right, folks. So that's what you can expect from the new nominee. Okay, vigorous assault uh, against police. Okay, so much for minimum wage increase. California tells court it can't release inmates early because it would lose cheap prison labor. Imagine that. Our California, out of California, is years-long litigation over reducing the population of prisoners deemed unconstitutionally overcrowded by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010. Other obstacle to um, another obstacle to addressing the U.S. epidemic of mass incarceration has emerged: the utility of cheap prison labor. Okay, in recently filing, in recent filings, lawyers for the state have resisted court orders that they expand parole programs, reasoning not that a reasoning releasing inmates early is logistically impossible or would threaten public safety, but instead that prisons won't have enough minimum security inmates left to perform inmate jobs. The dispute culminated Friday when uh, a three-judge panel ordered California to expand its early parole program. California now has no choice but to broaden the program known as two-for-one credits. That gives inmates who meet certain milestones the opportunity to have their sentences reduced. But California's objections uh, raise troubling questions about whether prison labor creates perverse incentives to keep inmates in prison, even when they do not need to be there. The debate centers around an expansive state program to have inmates fight wildfires. I don't think that's the right thing. But California is one of the several states that employs prison labor to fight wildfires, and it has the largest such program. As the state wildfire program uh, problem rapidly expands, arguably between because of the climate change, by employing prison inmates who are paid less than two dollars per day, 
the state saves some $1 billion, according to recent BuzzFeed features uh, of the practice. My God. California relies on that labor source, and only the certain classes of nonviolent inmate charges with lower-level offenses are eligible for the selective program. They must then meet physical and other criteria. In exchange, they get the opportunity to early release or earning twice as many credits toward early release as inmates in other programs uh, would otherwise earn, known as two-for-one credits. In February, the federal court overseeing California's prison litigation um, uh, ordered the state to expand this two-for-one program to some other rehabilitation program so that other inmates who experience good behavior good behavior and perform certain work successes, uh, successfully would also be eligible for a release. Uh, so anyway. So they have it goes slave on labor. On, uh, 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 but they got slave labor over there. And they don't want to release them because it would, uh, it would upset They'd the... They'd have to uh, pay people a lot more than yeah. $2 a day. So, so much for liberal Mr. Governor uh, Brown wow. there of California. Just another... Anyway, so, hey, guess what? I can't believe it. Well, it's probably I don't think GMO is, the GMO, it wasn't GMO'd enough. <laughs> Even McDonald's rejects new GMO potato and french fries. Can you imagine that? In this country or? Here, yeah, nationwide. All right, it says, rejects the new french fries. Ever since the USDA recently approved the first genetically modified potato for planting in the U.S., individuals across the country became concerned that their supermarket potatoes would be tainted with a new GMO creation. While the GM potato may soon to be found in many supermarkets and restaurants, fast food giant McDonald's has surprisingly announced that it would not be sourcing these GMO potatoes. This is even more powerful when we consider the fact that a creator of the new mutant potato is also McDonald's current main supplier for their potato supply. The new GMO potato, which has been named Innate by its creator, Simplot, will be engineered to brown slower than the non-GM potatoes and bruise less easily. It will also contain less of a possible carcinogenic compound known as acrylamide, which appears when potatoes are fried at high temperatures. Simplot reassures the public that the method in which these potatoes are created aren't nearly as alarming or aggressive as techniques used by other companies, such as Monsanto. But we aren't convinced that tampering with Mother Nature in such a way is a good idea. When or if innate hits the market and expected to take off for several reasons. The non-browning, non-bruising aspects of the GM potato will undoubtedly appeal to farmers who will be able to sell more appealing potatoes. That would otherwise be wasted. Supermarkets will also be happy with the product for these reasons. The other huge buyers are the consumers and big buyers such as McDonald's. Well, if McDonald's were actually in the market for GE potatoes, with McDonald's reportedly buying 3.4 billion pounds of potatoes annually in the U.S., it would have meant a huge profit for biotech and sellers of GMO potatoes. But it turns out that fast food giant won't be leading, be a leading distributor of this questionable new creation as we would have expected. A company spokesman said McDonald's USA does not source GMO potatoes, nor do we have current plans to change our sourcing practice. We will just have to see if this actually holds true in the future or if McDonald's is simply avoiding negative publicity. When you think about it, it almost makes sense. If McDonald's were to pick up the GM potato, the main selling point would be our new fries might be less carcinogenic than the other ones were we've been selling for you, to you for 50 years. They're making you I don't think that would be so smooth. So if they can't market this new stuff, why take on ridicule from the public? I think uh, i like to see McDonald's try to explain that in their new transparency ad campaign. 
that has been running. While the GMO potato won't be as helpful for McDonald's as it would be others since french fries are primary potato food sold, it's still uh, surprising, uh, though, to see McDonald's refuse innate. After all, the company serves up low-quality food riddled with toxic ingredients to several to millions of people. In the meantime, uh, Simplot, Simplot will be targeting the consumer directly for sale. While the potato may stand out since they will need to be marketed as improved to garner a premium price, the public won't really know what it is actually a gen genetically engineered potato since the FDA refuses to label GMO foods. Yeah. So since innate potatoes provide less bruise and less black spot and browning when peeled, um, as well as less asparagine, uh, they provide a sustainable, healthy option for consumers. Okay, says Simplot spokesperson. Especially in the fresh hole and fresh cut market where no preservatives or additives are needed. Yeah, well, you don't need that since you, 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 Frankenfood, you're, 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 huh. uh, you're potatoes. Simplot may be able to sell its questionable creation for now, but the food movement will undoubtedly complicate things. It's big biotech. Awareness is growing every day, and it will continue to do so. So there you go, folks. No GMO. We must not have GMOs. Hmm. Any step that they can take to get rid of them would be good. Why did China just ban McDonald's new genetically modified super potato? <laughs> but the U.S. didn't. Uh-huh. See, they already have a genetically modified potato. McDonald's done. Mm. Look at that. Now, this is the innate. That's the new one that they just banned. Yeah. The conventional one is already yummy, yummy, right? Simplot, an agribusiness which supplies McDonald's with over 3 billion pounds of potatoes annually, just announced the latest genetic experiment with potato uh, appropriately called innate. Okay, so we know that. Uh, should we be concerned about the new GM potato? The USDA boasts that they have been no observed dangers to other crops in the vicinity of an ape. And it is rumored that the FDA will approve the potato within a month. However, the medical implications...
The campaign Arthur Rundelson explains uh, to American Family Association News Network, uh, One News Now, we have taken a little bit of time to prepare an initiative that covers promoting Christianity, which is recognized as the principal religion of Mississippi from the founding of the state in 1817 to the present, and affirmed in the state constitution prayer acknowledging the Holy Bible. The actual text of the amendment would read, The state of Mississippi hereby acknowledges the fact of her identity as principally Christian and quintessentially Southern state in terms of the uh, majority of her population, character, culture, history, and heritage from 1817 to the present. Accordingly, the Holy Bible is acknowledged as the foremost source of her founding principles, um, inspiration, and virtues, and accordingly, prayer is acknowledged as a respected, meaningful, and valuable custom of her uh, citizens. Yes. And the acknowledgment hereby secured shall not be construed to transgress either the national or state constitutional bill of rights. So, there you go, folks. They're trying to do it. I don't think they should do it. I don't think they should be allowed to do it, since it's not constitutional. But, hey, that's the way it is, right, babe? Yeah. yeah. You can't, some things you can't change, Leo. You just oh, have yeah. to go along with it. Anyway, getting off that and getting on Israel, and let's see how long we last on the air with, uh, as we talk about this before we get zapped. All right? Israel bans from Gaza for a life-renowned uh, Norwegian doctor and human rights activist, Mads Gilbert. Interesting, huh? Yeah. What did he do, take care of too many people and have success? Probably healed he people. Uh, Israel has been well. They are Norwegian surgeon Mads Gilbert, who treated many of the thousands of civilians seriously wounded by Israel's attacks on Gaza in 2008 and 9, in the summer of 2014. Israel has banned the Norwegian doctor and human rights activist Mads Gilbert from entering Gaza for life. Gilbert, a professor at the University Hospital of North Norway, where he has worked since 1996, earned international renown for his philanthropic work in late 2008 during Israel's Operation Cast Lead, an attack that, according to Israel's human rights organization, B.T.S.L.M., killed roughly 1,400 Gazans, including almost 800 civilians, and 350 of whom were children. The aid worker, along with fellow Norwegian doctor Eric Fossey, decided to volunteer in Gaza as soon as he heard that the bombings had started on the 27th of December 2008. Thanks to diplomatic and economic support and the sum of $1 million of emergency funding from the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the two physicians managed to arrive in the Strip by the 30th of December. The Israeli government prevented all international press from entering Gaza during cast leave. And there's a documentary on that called The War Around Us. Was made about only, uh, and that was made about the only two foreign reporters in the Strip at that time. In what Gilbert called Israel's insidious PR plan, the doctor is one of the only international aid workers in Gaza thus devoted considerable time to speaking with local Palestinian news outlets, some of whom were reporting on behalf of foreign networks, including BBC, CNN, ABC, and Al Jazeera. BBC aired an interview with Gilbert conducted in the hospital. The questions asked and the answers guarded were eerily similar to those he would give just five years later during Operation Protective Edge. The interviewer began asking him to respond to Israel's claims that it was not targeting civilians, that it was only attacking Hamas militants. Gilbert called the claim an absolutely stupid statement and explained that among the hundreds of patients he had seen at that point, only two had been fighters. The large majority were women, children, and men civilians. These numbers are contradictory to everything Israel says, he reported. Gilbert drew attention to the fact that the overflowing hospital did not have enough supplies to treat all of its patients, 
and censored the international community for doing nothing to assist them. Israel would not let in foreign doctors, and yet Palestinians were dying waiting for surgery. This is a complete disaster, he remarked, calling it the worst man-made disaster he could think of. There are injuries you just don't want to see in this world. In 2008 and 9, Gilbert treated Palestinians who had been grievously wounded by Israel's use of experimental and illegal chemical weapons, including white phosphorus, the dense inert metal, munitions, and flechette shells. In July 2014, in the midst of Israel's most recent attack on Gaza, Gilbert spoke with electronic intifada, revealing that he saw indications of renewed use of dime weapons and flechettes. While volunteering in Shaifa Hospital, Gaza's principal medical facility, Gilbert penned an open letter lamenting the unspeakable horrors that the Israeli military was instigating. Ground invasion of Gaza resulted in scores and carloads with maimed, torn apart, bleeding, shivering, dying, all sorts of injured Palestinians, all ages, all civilians, all innocents. The heroes in the ambulances and in all of Gaza's hospitals are working 12 to 24-hour shifts, gray from fatigue and inhumane workloads, without payment in Shifa for the last four months. They care, triage, try to understand the incomprehensible chaos of bodies, sizes, limbs, walking, not walking, breathing, not breathing, bleeding, not bleeding humans. Humans, ash-gray faces, oh no, not one more load of tens of maimed and bleeding. We still have lakes of blood on the floor in the emergency room, piles of dripping blood-soaked bandages to clear out, and oh, the cleaners everywhere swiftly shoveling the bed and discarded tissues, hair, clothes, and cannulas, the leftovers from death all taken away to be prepared again, to be repeated all over. More than 100 cases came into Shifa in the last 24 hours, enough for a large, well-trained hospital with everything, but here, almost nothing. Electricity, water, disposable drugs, operating room tables, instruments, monitors, all rusted and as if taken from museums of yesterday's hospitals. But they did not complain, these heroes, not once. Now once more treated like animals by the most moral army in the world. The doctor directed one heart-wrenching passage to President Obama, writing, Mr. Obama, do you have a heart? I invite you to spend one night, just one night with us in Shefa. I'm convinced 100% it would change history. Nobody with a heart and power could ever walk away from a night in, I guess it's Shaifa, without being determined to end the slaughter of the Palestinian people. Israel later attacked the Shaifa hospital. Doctors without borders strongly condemned the incursion, saying it demonstrated how civilians in Gaza have nowhere safe to go. MSF Director Marie Noel Rodriguez stated in an official statement, when the Israeli army orders civilians to evacuate their houses and their neighborhoods, where is there for them to go? Gazans have no freedom of movement and cannot take refuge outside of Gaza. They are effectively trapped. Shaifa was one of the over one of the over 10 medical facilities Israel bombed in a 50-day offensive. In 2000, Gilbert made headlines for saying, saving the life of a skier who had been trapped in sub-zero water. She had been pronounced clinically dead with a body temperature of 57. But Gilbert, Gilbert managed to revive her. For a service, Gilbert was awarded the Northern Norwegian of the Year Award. Before Operation Protective Edge commenced in July 2014, Gilbert toured medical and health facilities and individual homes in Gaza, researching for United Nations relief in works agencies for Palestinian refugees in the Near East. Uh, UNRWA report on the dire state of the Strip's health sector. He wrote of overstretched health facilities, widespread physical and psychological trauma, and a deep financial crisis, a lack of needed medical supplies, and a severe energy crisis. He also noted that devastating results of the blockade imposed by the government of Israel with rampant poverty 
a 30.5% unemployment rate, food insecurity in at least 57% of households, and inadequate access to clean water. All of these already extreme ills were only exacerbated by the July to August Israeli assault on Gaza, an onslaught that left roughly 2,200 Palestinians dead, including over 1,500 civilians and more than 500 of whom were children. Gilbert is not the only one Israel has recently prevented from entering Gaza. In August, just after the end of its military assault, Israel refused to allow Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, the world's leading human rights organizations, from entering the Strip, impeding them from conducting war crimes investigations. The organizations had been requesting access for over a month before Israel had even begun its ground invasion of Gaza, yet were continuously prevented from doing so. Israel has banned Human Rights Watch investigators from entering Gaza since 2006. Amnesty International has been refused access since 2012. Dr. Mads Gilbert is the last, latest esteemed personal non grata to be added to the growing list. Other AIDS workers and medical professionals have faced even worse consequences for volunteering to help Palestinians. In August, Israeli occupation forces killed a social worker. In the same month, as the Israeli military engaged in a campaign to target and openly murder Palestinian civilians who spoke Hebrew, Israeli forces assassinated volunteers working with the Palestinian Red Crescent a nonprofit humanitarian organization, part of the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. A common myth suggests that Israel ended its occupation of Gaza with its 2005 disengagement. The state's ability to ban and even kill internationally recognized human rights organizations and doctors, not to mention food construction equipment and medical supplies from entering Palestinian territory, however, demonstrates that Gaza is by no means autonomous. Israel's siege of the Strip is clearly a continuation of its 47-year-long illegal military occupation. As a legal Stuk scholar, Nura Erekat explains, despite removing 8,000 settlers and the military infrastructure that protected their illegal presence, Israel maintained a effective control over the Gaza Strip and thus remains the occupying power is defined by Article 47 of the Hague Regulations. To date, Israel maintains control of the territory's airspace, water, electromagnetic sphere, population registry, the movement of all goods and people. Palestinians have yet to experience a day of self-governance. Israel's immediately imposed a siege upon the Gaza Strip when Hamas won parliamentary victory in 2006 and tightened it severely when Hamas looted Fatah in June 2007. The siege has created a humanitarian catastrophe in the Gaza Strip. Inhabitants will not be able to access clean water, electricity, or attend to even the most urgent medical needs. The World Health Organization explains that the Gaza Strip will be unlivable by 2020. And not only did Israel not end its occupation, it has created a situation in which Palestinians cannot survive in the long term. In his July interview with Electronic Intifada, Gilbert made it clear that his work as a medical professional cannot be done. The Palestinian people cannot live healthy, yet alone free lives, while Israel continues its illegal siege and occupation. As a doctor, my prescription is very clear. Number one, stop the bombing. That means stop Israeli bomb from bombing civilians and indiscriminately hitting families. Number two, lift the siege. And number three, find a political solution, he stated. In the latest in late October discussions with the Daily Targum, Gilbert encouraged Americans to do what they can to speak out against Israel's illegal occupation and blockade of Palestinian territories and to pressure their government to stop its indefatigable support of, for Israeli crimes. At present, the U.S. provides Israel with over $3.15 billion of military aid per year. 
In the past 52 years, over 100 billion U.S. taxpayer dollars have been given to that country in military aid alone. You are the change makers, Gilbert told the American readers. The key to the change when it comes to the occupation of Palestine lies in the United States. Solidarity, not pity, he said, is the solution. There you go. And I think that's good. What do you think? Yeah, well, he spoke very eloquently on that problem. And he got kicked out. Yep. Well, he had to leave, and then he can't get back in. They won't let him back. You know... Uh, you know, he probably went home to Norway for something. Oh, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. This is a really interesting article because it talks about um, the subsidies, subsidies and the cost to go into coal, you know, and to into carbon-intensive carbon, uh, energy. But it says, the bonfire of the subsidies. Mm. As the subsidies continue to grow globally, some $600 billion is spent to uh, support carbon-intensive energies compared to just $90 billion for clean energies. Uh, when will we take the pledge to phase out fossil fuel subsidies? See? So, London. Hidden costs. Yeah, well, that we don't really hidden see. Costs. They're just costs that the, the governments are giving to these companies. Well, hidden money. They say that it's, you know... The that clean energy is too expensive, oh, but as it yet. finds out... The dirty energy out. is more expensive than clean energy. Yeah, the, they, they don't tell you the, that and part of the cost. The number of chances that the world will have to address climate change is dwindling. One of them comes in this week's G20 summit in Brisbane, Australia, where leaders of the world uh, advanced uh, and major uh, emerging economies can single serious intent by cutting the fossil fuel subsidies that fuel global warming. Five years ago, the G20 pledged to phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies as part of a wider strategy for combating climate change. Yet the subsidies have continued to grow. Globally, some $600 billion is spent to support carbon-intensive energy compared to $90 billion for the clean energy. The, what, that makes no sense. And fossil fuel subsidies encourage investors to put resources into the fuels that are driving climate change. They generate the terrible local pollution that blights cities in China and India. And most of the, the benefits of the subsidies are captured by the middle class, not the poor. Um, subsidies direct, uh, directed toward discovering and exploiting new fossil fuel reserves are almost the most wasteful and the most damaging. Along with the rest of the international community, G20 governments are committed to the target of limiting global warming to less than two uh, centimeters above the planet's pre-industrial level. But no more, according to the Industrial Energy Agency. No more than one-third of known reserves can be exploited if this goal is to be achieved. So why throw public financing at discovering more unburnable carbon? Then that is question uh, is a question that G20 taxpayers want uh, might want to ask the political leaders. And the Overseas Development um, Institute and Oil, Ch Oil Change International have provided the first financial hydro subsidies allocated specifically to the discovery of new fossil fuel reserves by G20 countries. Their report, published this week, identifies about $88 billion in public financial support provided through an assortment of tax breaks, spending by state-owned enterprises in transfer mediated through financial institutions such as the World Bank. So it just keeps on going. I mean, man, you got to go to the side. It's pretty long. But it talks about this unbelievable subsidies that go to the sort this is nation of change. Uh, yeah, so to check this out. And uh, yeah, check this article out. Uh, yeah, we just got a few more minutes. I guess it was an assassination plot to try to kill Putin. Oh really? Let's yeah. read that. Well, it's actually a, a audio piece, so let's see right here. 
Yeah, I'll try. I don't know how long it is. Russian and Ukrainian special forces have foiled an assassination plot targeting Russia's Prime Minister Vladimir Putin. The suspects reportedly admitted planning to make their move in Moscow right after Sunday's presidential ballot. Marty Yegor Piskunov joins us live now for more on this. Uh, well, Yegor, what more do we know? Well, according to Russia's Channel 1, two suspects were arrested in the Ukrainian city of Odessa early in February. Uh, both as the channel says, are Russian citizens, and one was on the international wanted list. Reportedly, both admitted plotting an assassination attempt on the life of Prime Minister Vladimir Putin in Moscow right after the upcoming presidential vote on March the 4th. Uh, Putin's press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, told RT that the event did take place. However, he refrained from uh, commenting at the moment. Meanwhile, uh, Channel One has uh, shown video of uh, the two suspects describing how they prepared for this assassination. One of them said that it was actually ordered by Russia's number one terrorist, Doku Umanov, but this information is... Uh, still has to be confirmed since the investigation is still ongoing. They also said that there were originally three people in this group, three men. Uh, they uh, studied the route of uh, Putin's motorcade, the amount of uh, bodyguards there, uh, and were hiding from the authorities by switching flats. And uh, early in February, they were putting together an explosive device which uh, went off right in that apartment, killing one of these men. And... Uh, the other two uh, admitted plotting this assassination attempt shortly after they were arrested by the authorities. But Vladimir uh, Putin travels with a large security detail, doesn't he? An attempt on his life would be near impossible, wouldn't it? Well, that's right. Uh, the Prime Minister is quite heavily guarded by dozens of security officers, both in uniform and undercover. Uh, the motorcade itself isn't uh, that large, really. It usually consists of up to seven cars, uh, escorted by around four traffic police vehicles, but the entire route of the motorcade is also guarded by security officers. Now, this isn't the first time that uh, Vladimir Putin became a target of an assassination plot, but uh, they never came to actual attempts on his life. Uh, and uh, neither is Vladimir Putin the first senior politician in Russia who uh, uh, became a target of these plots. Just in 1993, back then President Boris Yeltsin almost became uh, a target of a, a bomb plot. Uh, before that, during the Soviet times, Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, his motorcade was attacked by gunmen, but I think it's probably uh, Vladimir Lenin who tops this, um, this list since uh, some historians believe that he survived up to 10 assassination, uh, assassination attempts on his life. Okay, Artie Zivopiskov, live from central Moscow. Thank you for that. Well, that was kind of interesting. I didn't realize it yeah. was an attempt on uh, his life, and that was a while back. Yeah. That was kind of interesting. German politician hides in toilets from the truth about Israel. Author Max Blumenthal had one goal in mind when he went to the Bundestag, German parliament in Berlin on Monday. He wanted to show a photograph of the Al-Kiliani family, German citizens killed by an Israel bomb. 
Israeli bomb that struck the Gaza City home they were sheltering in last summer to leading left-wing politician Geiger Gysi. So I guess he went off to the bathroom. Wow. Israeli troops shoot 10-year-old Palestinian in the neck for loitering. Gaza desalinated drinking water is leading to cancer, osteoporosis, and other fatal illnesses. The car service app Uber promotes free delivery of mercury injections. Getting a mercury-laced flu shot was easier than ever on October 23rd for folks living in Boston, New York, and D.C. for one day only. The innovative transportation Transportation Service Uber highlighted, piloted an Orwellian program pitched as Uber Health that delivered on-site influenza jabs to anyone with a smartphone and the services app installed on it. Huge amounts of carcinogenic chemicals contaminate the air near fracking sites. That's not a surprise. It seems with each passing day, yet another health and environmental hazard is identified as being linked to hydraulic fracking, the process of injecting more than 200 chemicals at high pressure into the ground, shattering rock and releasing one of America's most valued resources, natural gas. Hydraulic fracking continues to be proven more dangerous than scientists imagine with the latest research unmasking unthinkable health effects in residents living near fracking sites. We have about one minute, I think. Okay. Um, uh, oh, here's something local, how Detroit is splitting into two cities. It's becoming a city of the extremely rich. And, of course, the city of the poor where they can't even get drinking water. Mm -hmm. So that's something to think about. Did someone... Uh, a very wealthy person who bought a lot of Detroit, a lot of the real estate, and he's got like his own private um, security force. They have all kinds of things going on. I'm trying to see who it was that bought up. There's a wealthy part of Detroit called Palmer Woods. The bishop's residence is a 30-room Tudor Revival castle that was originally commissioned by a family of fabulously wealthy automobile pioneers who later sold their company to General Motors. I guess I guess they haven't been sued too much in Detroit, so the bishop could afford a 30-room Tudor Revival castle. What a bunch of what a bunch of corrupt people, man! I tell you, they're so corrupt, you know. Catholic Church is just overwhelmingly sick. Ah, no. Anyway, let us let us move forward. The night is over. We are done, and. Um, with those uh, with those facts, um, then we uh, we leave you tonight. Join us tomorrow night for our union show and uh, plenty of other issues, our environmental health reports and so on, and uh, real news that you can use, folks. So wish you good night and God bless you. And uh, good night, folks. Yeah, whatever you believe, just believe it. Have a good night. Here. We give it to you. We give you the facts, folks. So good night, everyone.